This is the Bama Podcast with Marty Solomon. I'm his co-host, Brent Billings. Today we are joined by L. Grover Fricks to survey the forgotten women of the New Testament. Welcome back. Thank you. I'm so excited. We've been focusing on Tanakh for quite some time. So now we get to turn our eyes into the the future or the, the past for us. But, you know, whatever. <laughs> the less distant past. That's right. The middle future. Yeah, something. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so we're going to survey a couple of different ladies who maybe they're not completely unknown. Like in our second episode, there's certainly folks in there who have been translated out of the text. Most of the people who we're talking about today, you'll you'll know, you'll recognize them. Like, oh yeah, her. Uh, but still, still good stuff. Okay, so we're going to start with prophets. So Marty, you just wrote a wonderful book available wherever books are sold, uh, (laughs) now available for purchase. Um, And one of those chapters is on prophets. So how would you define a prophet? Uh, Well, I remember back in the day, back in the session two days, and I, I said this in my book as well, but I fought with it. I called them a prophet was a mouthpiece. I called him the mouthpiece of the Lord. And the whole time I did in the book, I had Abraham Joshua Heschel ringing in my mm. back of my mind where he was like, that's not what they are. They're more than that. That's not it. That's not it. Um, and I was like, ah, how do I say this? And so I tried to add maybe a little bit more poetry to my explanation in the book. But I think that was that's my typical go to. They are here to convey. But see, now I can't talk about it without Heschel language. Like mm. they're here to convey the pathos of God. Yeah. I think you also refer to them as gorilla speakers. Oh, right? yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. Um, like gorilla preachers. Like, uh, um, yeah. What was the phrase that I. Gorilla theater. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yep. Well, very exciting. Just as there were female prophets in Tanakh, we continue to see female prophets show up in. Uh, the New Testament. So they're scattered all over the place, um, if we have the eyes to see and the ears to hear. So in Corinthians, of course, famously, Paul tells women who are prophesying in the ecclesia and the church to make sure their heads are covered, uh, which would imply that they're doing so, right? <laughs> it would seem that way. <laughs> seem like it. It would be odd if not. Um, I mean, maybe it's one of those like super old laws that's still on the books where it's like giraffes are illegal in Illinois. <laughs> <laughs> that would be the way we kind of interpret it today, huh? But it is, yeah. Oh, well. Um, Acts 21 tells us Philip's four daughters were prophets. Ding, ding, ding. Um, Marty has a great teaching on that in Turkey. Is it Turkey? I do. And if we link the right church traditions with it, she, he may have even had three more by the time it was done. Potentially seven daughters who prophesied. Absolutely. Right. Right. In Acts, there's only four. But it's four. seven's yep. better than four, unless you have to buy a minivan. Um, Absolutely. <laughs> okay. Uh, there's also some scholarly conversation about the woman who anoints Jesus. So she appears in all four Gospels, but in Matthew and Mark, she's specifically anointing Jesus's head. 
And the conversation in the text, um, Jesus defends her by saying that she's preparing him for burial, right? Uh, That's the usual byline. But if we look at it from the perspective of honor culture and the fact that she was certainly being presumptuous um, when we think about gender roles and the fact that the disciples might have been more worried about that than the price of the anointing oil, the perfume, um, that Mm -hmm. could be an honorable way not to say what would have been so explicit to them that she shouldn't have been doing that. Um, And if, of course, we think about people anointing other people, uh, what what stories pop out from the Tanakh? Uh, I think of um, Samuel anointing David as the very first thing that comes out of comes to mind. Right, right. Oh, prophet. A oh, prophet. yeah, sure. A prophet. Yeah. The prophets are the ones that I, I see where you're uh-huh. headed. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, yep. And Jesus, of course, being the line of David, son of David, big theological point. And so he invites, potentially through allowing her to do so, he invites a woman to be, to stand in the role of Shmuel um, in this moment where he's showing a different kind of kingship, of course, than um, Shaul and David whacked out, but still important. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so we've got these little these little moments and then testament about female prophets, but one of them stands out. We probably read her every year um, because she's part of the incarnation story and the birth story, which is the prophetess Anna or Hannah. She's in Luke 2, verse 36 through 38. Brent, would you mind reading that for us? Maybe in the you know, the NKJV or something. Sorry, I didn't pre-warn you. New King James. Is this even allowed? What's going on right now? Elle just shows up and she thinks she can just change the officially (laughs) blessed Bema translation. What is the officially blessed one? Obviously the NIV. Oh. It's not, I would never, I wouldn't say it's official, but it's certainly what we exclusively use just about. (laughs) It was yeah, I was more being facetious and tongue-in-cheek, but you get the idea. <laughs> yeah, somebody asked, actually asked me the other day, they said they said I was reading the NET. I, was, I actually don't really read from the NET. I just use it for the footnotes, but I have it in parallel with the NIV, so I'm usually reading the NIV. But I can read New King James if that's what you're really into. This might be the first time. might be the first time. We've had one where we quoted multiple translations, and I bet we probably grabbed NKJV for that. But that, we're gonna, that might be. We're going to take a little dive into translations in probably 20 minutes, so... Hold oh, your horses. Hooray. Yeah. I'm I just got excited. So many horses to hold. Okay, Luke. Okay. Brent via Luke. Or Luke via Brent. One of the two. <laughs> now there was one, Anna, a prophetess, the daughter of Fanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was of a great age and had lived with a husband seven years from her virginity. And this woman was a widow of about eighty-four years who did not depart from the temple but served God with fastings and prayers night and day. And coming in that instant, she gave thanks to the Lord and spoke of him to all those who looked for redemption in Jerusalem. Wonderful. Uh, Okay, so what stands out? What's odd? What uh, catches your eye in that passage? Well, I mean, a lot of the language, because we don't normally read the New King James. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Well, with those freshened eyes. Yeah. I mean, the virginity part, I feel like, is probably, yeah, the NIV just says after her marriage. So that could potentially give some kind of flavor to it that, uh, 
maybe some sort of textual link that uh, that I wouldn't necessarily catch otherwise. Um, I would suggest, this is not the main point at all, but uh, I would suggest that that's linked to the Parthenos as in the Parthenon, because where does she live? In the temple, right? In the temple. Oh, yeah. I've noticed that before. Yeah, that's a great point. Yep. Okay. Yeah, the 84 years part caught me. Um, yeah. Which, A, is a long time, but also, yeah, of about, she was a widow of about 84 years. NIV says she was a widow until she was 84. Yeah. So there's a discrepancy in different translations, which is why I went with New King James, um, about whether she was 84 years old or whether she was 84 years old plus the age at which she was married, putting her at like 105. I fall on mm-hmm. one side, which is why I had you read a maybe unexpected one. Uh-huh. But, okay. mm-hmm. but anything else? Uh, well, prayers night and day, I think is an interesting order. Mm-hmm. Unless you're thinking from a Jewish perspective and then it's makes sense. Well, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But like it, it stands out as, as linking it to, you know, Genesis. Yeah. Right. So you guys mentioned the 84 years, whether that's as long as she lived or it was Mm -hmm. 84 years since her husband died. Um, What perhaps might stand out uh, culturally about that is what does Paul tell widows to do? Or what do the pastoral epistles tell widows to do? Uh, It tells them to read. Well, you're really stretching my memory of these passages uh does it tell them to remarry if they're able it does it does tell them to remarry if they're able so the that was very advantageous to do especially if you've only been married to your spouse for seven years you know depending on when your theory on average age range is Mm -hmm. you're still very marriageable. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we see different examples, like in the book of Judges, when women are leaving their husbands or something happens, they're supposed to go back to the house of their father and then they get remarried to somebody. Uh, that helps protect them economically, right? It helps maximize how many children they might have. It puts them in a new place that um, they can have a new community. And Paul points out that then the church isn't taking care of them, the house of whoever they married into is. And so what pops out, maybe for someone who's used to that way of life, is she was widowed so young, and yet she never remarried. And I know this is going to be even more of a stretch, uh, but do you recall any widows who remained widows rather than getting new married remarried and it's a bit of a trick question so don't burst too many brain cells on on thinking about it in in tanakh well isn't that the thing uh from 135 bce so so no not in tanakh it's the uh the thing there and yet very popular in the first century oh i feel like i should know this one and i don't you probably do it's just probably the the heat of the trivia <laughs> i do you know off. what it's like to be brent now all these episodes are getting grilled with questions there you go we need more brent appreciation yeah um okay so another woman who was very popular at that time um that they would 
very likely think of is the woman Yehudit. Um, the book of Judith oh, uh, yeah. was, again, written about 100 to 200 years before the birth of Christ. And it's a story of um, a widow who does not remarry. She also has other little connections with Hannah, um, like uh, she's from the tribe of Simeon. And Anna here is put next to this passage about uh, a guy named Simeon, right? They both um, are older. They're both not remarrying. Um, and so I'd like to take a moment to tell her story since most people probably aren't super familiar uh, and then see what we can see about what Luke might be saying about Hannah. Ju- Judith's story. Yes. All right. Love yes. it. Okay. So the book of Judith, uh, part of the Catholic canon, kept out of the Protestant canon, not, by the way, because of some conspiracy about female characters, but rather because Luther pointed out that she, uh, the first seven chapters are historical and the history is pretty anachronistic. Um, and so that's, he said it was a good and holy book that people should read and he even said that the spirit was speaking in it. And yet he kept it from the canon because of historicity. Um, but so in the story, uh, Assyria is encroaching and it, uh, King Uziah has decided that he is just going to let go this town, um, which is, has one of the words for virginity, Bethulia as the name. So again, we've got a little ding, ding, ding link over to Hana. Um, he's just going to surrender this town to the Assyrians. Yehudit, Judith, our main character, finds out and takes absolutely everybody to task for it. She goes and uh, she prays first, but she goes and talks to her um, town leaders. She goes and talks to the king. She says, I have a plan and I'm going to deal with this. This is not appropriate. Our God champions, the orphans, the helpless, those in need. Why are we assuming that God will not show up for us? Um, And so she, despite having been a widow for a long time of much means, um, she wasn't living that way. She was living um, in austerity despite having lots of means. But she puts on her old garments and takes her um, maid with her and dressed in all this finery. And she extraordinarily uh, walks out into the valley um, outside of her town and lets herself get taken captive by the Assyrians, which is extraordinarily brave if you're a woman, uh, especially when you're dressed up all nice. And she tells them that she wants to talk to the general because she wants to be a double agent for him. And she's going to tell him all this stuff. He, uh, everybody's very excited about this. And he uh, says, not only is she beautiful, she's also wise. What? That's never happened before. Uh, And so (laughs) she gives him this information or whatever. And he, of course, is interested in her not just as a provider of information, but uh, also he has darker intentions, which she pretends to go along with, but pulling the classic move, which always keeps you safe. She makes sure at the banquet that he drinks too much. So he passes out in the tent um, and she's alone with him because she prearranged this whole thing, pretending she was going to be okay with everything. And instead, she prays again and grabs his massive sword uh, and prays for strength and beheads him. She then takes his head in a bag and tells the Assyrians 
that she's going to go pray, which she had set up as her strategy before to walk around and pray. So she walks out with the head of a general all the way out through the war camp um, and escapes back to her town where she continues to act kind of like a judge from the Tanakh by advising them on their military strategy. He mounts his head up on the wall and uh, kicks out the Assyrians. Um, and it says that the land lived in peace for much time because of her work. So delightful story, um, as long as, you know, you're not too bothered by beheadings, um, kind of fits within the narrative of Tanakh about the underdog using their wits and perhaps a gray areas in order to escape empire or the encroaching empire anyway. And so you can imagine why it's popular in the first century, as they're once again dealing with encroaching empire. Feels very Esther to me. Right. Like the whole, here's another shrewd woman, heroine of the story, outsmarts everybody, has this wisdom, saves them from imperial wrath. Very much so. I love it. Yeah. Like Tamar was our first archetype, but she was getting justice for herself and her dead husband, mm-hmm. right? And then mm-hmm. we kind of expand up into saving saving the whole people group. Okay, so once again, this was popular, um, referencing Simeon and referencing a widow who had lived a long time and yet had not remarried and thus probably had means. All these things are designed to set up our idea about Hannah um, and make us remember it. But in Yehudit's story in the book of Judith, she is using her wits and ultimately her violence to keep out an encroaching empire. And so I think it's possible that the Lucan narrative wants us to notice that people who are in the way of Jesus us are keeping away the encroaching empire and championing the redemption of Israel, as Luke puts it, um, via hearing from the Lord and teaching other people about it, right? Because it says that she then spoke about it. That word spoke is the same that Jesus uses when he's talking. It'll say uh, that he was about to say a parable, and, and it's that that word. So she's teaching everybody in the temple about this redemption. And so I think that Luke is trying to provide this woman is a is of the new way, the new way that we walk. We're not out there murdering generals. Um, instead, we're ministering to God's people, hearing glimpses of kingdom coming and with joy rather than anger, because Yehudit does have a lot of anger. Um heralding his coming and perhaps maybe internal as well like i'm looking at the story um like she's not having to leave camp to go take care of business because the people of god aren't perhaps maybe there's an evolution as well that the people of god are who she's who who hannah's going to to share this news right because perhaps there's a lot of potential in the people of god actually rising to the occasion right Right. I mean, if you're in that spot and you're a zealot, it's a great idea to try to ship an assassin over to, yep. you know, kill Caesar. Yep. Um, and instead, we have this other model presented through Hannah. So there she is teaching mm. people in the temple. Doesn't say she's just in the women's courts. She's um, mm-hmm. doing her thing. So that's our first observations. Women continue to prophesy throughout the New Testament, it seems, just as they did in the Old Testament. Questions, comments, concerns. Oh, yeah. Okay. 
Um, I want to talk about some Greek, which is not my my usual realm. Uh, so bear with me if I do mispronounce something, Internet. I know the Internet is famously graceful with people who, you know, say things wrong. So I rest easily. Well, it can't be any worse than what we've done before on this podcast. So <laughs> There we go. You did have a charming pronunciation of uh, Hannah's dad's name. So Thank you. Yeah, yeah. That's what I'm here for. Just building you I'll, up day I'll by day. I'll take that compliment. First Thessalonians. <laughs> encourage one another, as even you're also already doing. All right. So different words for service in the Greek. We've got six that we're going to survey today. We're going to skim over them, not deep dives, but they are important for contextualizing these other women that we're going to meet. So we've got oiketes. It's a household domestic servant. This is like Downton Abbey. This is the word used when it says no servant can serve two masters in Matthew 6. It's our word for a household domestic servant. This makes sense um, because if you're in somebody's house, you can't very easily go and serve another master, right? Makes sense that he would choose Mm -hmm. that word. Mm -hmm. Domestic servant. So that's the first one. It's not the one we're going to look at. Of course, again, standard teaching. It's going to be the last one. So... Pais, Pais, fascinating conversations around Pais, but it's another one that gets translated servant. Uh, but it is special in that it connotes youth. In the Hebrew, I won't test you, it's a na'ar. Um, and in Matthew 2, Herod slays all of the Pais. Um, the boy who keeps falling in the fire is a Pais that Jesus um, exercises. Is that right? It sounds like he did Pilates with him. Just for the record, I would have passed that test. I'm also getting strong John Hatter vibes. A shout out to John Hatter. He did a whole dissertation on these words for a servant, particularly in the Gospel of Matthew, I believe. Oh, wonderful. And had a wonderful conversation around his dinner table. So Very fun. It would have helped me pass some of this test. <laughs> okay. <I like> it. <laughs> um, our third word is therapon. Um, We know it's like mm-hmm. a retainer. Homer uses it that way in Hebrews 3. Moshe is called um, a therapon, which I think is kind of fun because it's like God kept him on retainer. Like, yeah, you can serve Pero for a while, but I'm going to snatch you <laughs> up. You're on retainer for me. Um, we've got uh, he. This is the one that, uh, to me, it should be pronounced hyperates. So if you're doing your own Strong's work, you can try to use that pronunciation. But apparently it's huperetes, huperetes. Alas, Greek, not my strength. Um, But this one is an under rower. So in Greek tyremes, you've got three layers of people rowing. Um, And Paul, when he's writing to the Corinthians, which Corinth was uh, an early adopter of tyremes, they introduced them to the rest of Greece. So text to context, as someone I know likes to say, Mm -hmm, Um, mm -hmm. he refers to himself as this under rower for Christ, a steward of the mysteries of God. Um, then we've got the most common word, number five, is doulos. This is our slave, our bond servant. It's the most common 126 times. So if you're wondering about a verse, it's probably doulos. Um, it's all through the parables whenever we're talking about servants making a dinner or whatever. It's a doulos. Mm-hmm. So these are all the words that one might think of when we talk about servant. But the last one, which we are going to dig into a little bit through one of our female characters, is diakonos. 
So diakonos is related to the Hebrew sharet, uh, and it's the word that we get minister from. Sharet is a waiter, technically. Um, it's Yosef at Potiphar's house. It's referred uh, to the it's the verb for what priests do in Exodus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, not in not in Leviticus. Um, but so it's the work of the priest. It's not just general work. Um, it's I do whatever you need. I run God's house. I'm his priest. I serve at his pleasure and serve all those coming into his household to meet him, right? We're kind of waiting on God um, like a good valet. Again, I haven't watched that much Downton Abbey, but I'm feeling a lot of Downton Abbey energy here. And it does feel like a reserved role. Like it's... Like a lot of these other roles are like um, lots of people in culture would have been these things. And yet this role feels to me like it's like you said, priests, like this is a role that's chosen. It's it's something special. It has heft for sure. And Paul uses it that way. He uses it four times in Second Corinthians to talk about his ministry. He uses it in mm-hmm. First Corinthians 3 to talk about Apollos and Paul are both Sharathim, are both ministers. Mm-hmm. Um, in Ephesians 3, he says, of this gospel, I was made a diakonos, I was made a minister. Um, in Ephesians and Colossians, it's used uh, when talking about Tychicus, and in Colossians, it's used to talk about Epiphras. Um, so she shows up, ding, 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 our, our woman that we're endeavoring not to forget uh, is Phoebe. And she shows up in Romans 16, verse 1. We've all yep. seen Magic School Bus. Yep. We all know Phoebe is female name. Uh, and usually she's translated servant. I use that usually because when I look on Bible Hub and it gives you 32 translation options right next to each other, um, 22 of those 32 use the word servant, which within the context of all these servant words, sure. But when we put it next to Corinthians and Apollos and Paul and the gospel, um, it has this minister uh, heft, like we were just saying. Um it's the same for Epaphras. Uh, he's the one who founded the Colossian church, right? He's the one who converted everybody and started the church there that Paul came to. Um, and then some of the translations go with deaconess to try to get that it's this extra title, right? Deacon comes from diacon. Um, so fair shot, except for, I would argue that that's a little bit anachronistic, a little bit of an interpolation, because Romans is one of our earliest scrolls from 55 or 57, depending on who you listen to, but we're we're pretty sure that it's very early, and we know that our hierarchy of church leadership comes from later in the story, um, the Didache being one of our first things, uh, talking about the ways that church administration happens. It doesn't mention deacons at all, right? Um, verse two also of Romans 16 implies that she's the one carrying the letter, which also, um, if we make the same conclusions that we do about these different male, other male characters who carry the letters, um, implies potentially a position of leadership. So Phoebe, uh, it's easy to read over her, blah, 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 a whole bunch of names at the end of Romans, um, just as a servant. But if we know these different contextual layers to these different words for servant, you know, she's not just 
an XYZ, not just someone on the fringes that um, Paul wanted to say an extra thanks to, but someone potentially significant in her community. Well, and we don't read over a lot of the other names in the same way. We don't read over, I mean, true, we don't talk about Epiphras every time we are turning the page, but we don't tend to like, we make a bigger deal about Epiphras than we do like Phoebe, right. like typically in our conversations, or the ministry of Paul. It's a pretty big deal. Right. Um, these other places where the word gets used. So, yeah, absolutely. It's a great point. You know how the NIV translates this? <laughs> Do tell. Deacon. All right. Well, why don't you read verses one and two, actually, for the full context for people who don't have their Bibles right in front of them, which I presume is most people. It does slap two footnotes on it, so... <laughs> That's how you know you're getting servant, saucy. It gives servant as an alternative, and then it does an explanation. The word deacon refers here to a Christian designated to serve with the overseers slash elders of the church in a variety of ways. And then it points you to Philippians and First Timothy for examples. Fascinating. Other examples. So, by the way, all these words, we don't have a fancy graphic for learning Greek with L, but I feel like we should make a presentation. <laughs> that for should these be words. alongside L for sure. Yeah. 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 From we'll, L. We won't, we won't title it in any fancy way. We'll just, we'll just present the words and Great. let them sit on their own. But uh, yeah, we'll make a, we'll make a presentation for this. Okay. Romans 16. I commend to you, our sister Phoebe, a deacon of the church in Confidence is everything, Brent. Confidence is everything. I ask you to receive her in the Lord in a way worthy of his people and to give her any help she may need from you, for she has been the benefactor of many people, including me. Amazing. And is that word benefactor, by the way? Because I feel like this makes this even... Is that the same word they'd use for a patron in a system of patronage? Yes, it is. Which I feel like makes that point even even more poignant to me like right because she's the benefactor as in she's been the one to patron paul right is how i'm hearing that right which from our modern eyes gonna be easy to imagine a patron as just someone who's donated to your gofundme right like oh thanks like shout out to the patrons um however it's much more as we previously discussed much more like the medici family patronizing a musician to write a mass. Yep. Um, it has a more of a hierarchical yep. uh, implication. Somebody is somebody as you pull somebody is pulling you up through life. It can be in a really negative sense in a Greco-Roman world, but it's somebody that is helping you get where you are trying to go. Right. Is the the language distinctive from uh the women who supported Jesus' ministry? we see in the gospels it's the same cultural context um Mm -hmm. and so jesus jesus does a little bit of maneuvering um to remind us that god is his chief patron because there is a distinct hierarchy of the way you are supposed to respond to a patron if you're a client is you show up and you tell them hi, I'm here. What do you want me to do today? And that person says, oh, I need this from you. And then they give you the resources to do it and you go and do it. Um, And so Jesus does allow women to be his patrons, um, which is fascinating in and of itself, while also reminding us that the person whose mission he is really on running is still God the Father's. Sure. 
Sure. Okay. Good question, Brent. I like that. Um, so the same thing happens to Mary. Miriam, uh, in Romans 16, 6, uh, she's described as a hard worker, which again, if you don't know, it's like, oh yeah, she's always there at 6 a.m. or setting up the chairs for church. We appreciate Mary. Thank goodness for Mary. What a cherished person she is. Um, but again, it's the same word described uh, for Epaphras, who preaches the gospel. Again, um, it's one of the words Paul uses to describe himself in Galatians 4 when he says, I am laboring over you in vain. Um, so not to diminish the person who sets up chairs before church. We're so thankful that that happens. Um, but ascribing a certain role segregation to Mary and imagining what kind of work she's doing only being that of setting up chairs before church um, is a boundary line which is not there in the Greek. It's not necessarily a faithful biblical interpretation to prescribe that line. And you're already being kind with setting up chairs because I know that the implication I was always, I'm sure, unintentionally given is that she's doing the dishes after the potluck, like... Yeah. Forget chair setting up. It's even, you know, the the assumptions are even more drastic than that. And I think a lot of our experience. Yep. Absolutely nothing in this verse for the NET. Uh, because of how many footnotes the NET has, it's interesting when it, it has nothing to say. Um, but I, I'm looking at the format of these different translations, the NIV, the NET, and the New King James. And they're all different. So the NIV breaks every like person or group into its own paragraph. The NET has this entire list of names in a single paragraph just shoved together. And the New King James is kind of like a, yeah, we'll just throw a paragraph break in there every once in a while to keep it interesting. For your eyes. Yeah, but I wonder if uh, if even the the decision on because it, there's no paragraph breaks in the Greek manuscripts, so right. I wonder like how much the decision to break these up even has its own underlying unconscious bias. Yeah, going on with like like oh, I, I mean I don't know if the NIV translators are saying this, but are they saying like hey we need to recognize individually all of these people or these groups. Who have done things, whereas the NET is like, yeah, it's just a big list of names. Can we just get through it? And I don't know. I don't know if that's what they're actually saying, but but are they are they communicating that? I don't know. I I would have to get out my Greek New Testament because there are paragraph breaks in the Greek. It's a great question. I'd have to look at where those show up and and those paragraph breaks may not show up until certain manuscripts, but there are paragraph breaks in the greek new testament so yeah I, well i guess there would be lines and stuff but yeah i was thinking of punctuation yeah oh sure yep okay our uh, last set of ladies here um so those are women who have kind of been skimmed over right mary phoebe um Trephenia and trophosa are also called workers in the Lord. Um, Tabitha is described as a materia, a disciple, and sometimes that's, you know, kind of translated away. Um, but this last group of women have been made to not exist in some of our translations. So uh, Romans 16, 7, again, we're kind of camping out here as our 
really battle strewn piece of parchment. Um, so could you, Brent, perhaps read for us Romans 16.7 in the NRSV and then the KJV? Oh, my gosh. And then the ESV. I'll do one of them for you so you don't have to Google all of them at the same time. No, okay, hold on, hold on. Make her read the ESV. She's making me have that for my interlinear, so make her read it. <laughs> so NRSV, KJV, and ESV. Okay, so NRSV, greet Andronicus and Junia, my fellow Israelites, who were in prison with me. They are prominent among the apostles, and they were in Christ before I was. Okay. King James, salute Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners, who are of note among the apostles who also were in Christ before me. Okay. And ESV. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners. They are well known to the apostles, and they were in Christ before me. Okay. So we've got some differences, uh, right? We have Junia, um, who in all three of these examples is all... Uh, femininely marked. And then we also have well-known to the apostles versus prominent among the apostles. Um, so before we dive into this issue, just a little bit of context. Um, I grew up having read the preface in my Bible to think that translations are always just doing the best that they can with very difficult tasks, which is still true, and that they're just guided by different values around if it's word for word or if it's phrase for phrase, etc. That is still true. But also... Bible translations have always been in conversation with one another. Um, this is not a new thing that manuscripts or new translations are drafted because of a different um, a different take. Famously, the Geneva Bible, which would have been, you know, Calvin's crew, uh, was disseminating around Europe. And it has footnotes like uh, we love and one of the footnotes that they had put on Romans 13, which talks about obeying authorities, they had put a footnote that said, unless the king is corrupt, um, also represents Swiss theology has always been a little more independent than some of our other European theologies. And so the King of England said, no, thank you. Absolutely not. I don't want a little addendum on this portion that says everybody should listen to me. I'm the, you know, sword of God on the earth. Take it out. So he commissioned the KJV partially because he didn't want notes and he thought that it should be incorrupted, uncorrupted by, um, by the hands of man, and he wanted one that would come out as more favorable for him. You know, that's his bias. And it created this great Bible that we've used for a very long time. So just because um, just because something is drafted in response to something doesn't make it bad or wrong. Um, but we do still want to acknowledge that there's a lot more going on politically than just everybody doing the best that they can. Indeed. And I feel like I should clarify. So this is the new revised standard version updated edition. Yeah. I feel like they've oh, yeah. tacked on a lot of 
<laughs> a lot of things to this, but yeah, it is, it is the NRSV updated edition. Right. So in case anyone is f- using that translation following on, if there were any differences, that's because what, what the internet has given me is the updated edition. So, right. Uh, that's important because the RSV is going to have Junia down as Junius. Um, same for a couple different Bibles still holding strong to Junius. Um, if you look, the NASB has Junius in 1977 and 1995, and then only their 2020 version, which is the NASB regular, um, is going to switch it to Junia along with making a different amendation. Um, so what's going on? Junia is a female name. Um, Junius is not uh, a name, like period. When we look at our inscriptions, um, people have done the work because this is a hotly contested verse and they have counted up how many inscriptions there are of the name Junia. It was a popular common name. Junius was not. Um, I think we have one that qualified as a maybe. So this would be like us taking the name Sarah and slapping an N on it and being like, Saron, it's it's a guy's name. That's not a name. <laughs> That's just us trying to, to fix things around. The first time it shows up as Junius, which again is male rather than female, is um, the ninth century. Not a great time for women. Um, and we have all of our um, early church fathers affirming Junia, both in her femininity and her apostleship. We have people like John Christensen. We have, um, uh, one of the other John's Basilides, um, across the spectrum. So from the Gnostic side to the straight up side, everybody's excited about Junia, the apostle. However, um, Again, ninth century, we first start to see these uh, these manuscripts, which make a change. To be the do the most generous construction, it would be like Brent said earlier, an unconscious bias that says, "Well, that has to be an error." So I'll just I'll just make a little adjustment here, and uh, they carried on their merry way, right? Of just them bringing their own ideas into the text and not realizing it. It's also possible to imagine that that wasn't what was happening. Um, especially in the ninth century, but it's still because of the faithfulness of the KJV translating her as, um, Junia, we still had a wealth of, um, Bible translations keeping her to be feminine, um, until we got to the twenties, which the twenties in America, was a tumultuous time. There were lots of, um, women who were in leadership, whether under the auspices of, um, you know, a formalized institution that said that was okay, or they were just running around the countryside causing havoc. And so that's an exaggeration. Um, but, uh, it was also a time when they were thinking about these issues. And so at that time you start seeing different versions again, popping up, changing it to Junius. Again, that is the result of cultural bias, um, being put onto the Bible, not, Making it feminine is not us interpolating a modern value of women into the text. It's the opposite. Um, so the NASB really also guides us along here in that before before the 2000s, 
Um, before we started having some concerns in our American Christianity about this verse, it had been translated outstanding among the apostles, um, continually. That's why I had you read, you know, multiple there, even the RSV, which did make it junius still had it well known, um, or outstanding. So if we follow the NASB here, as we follow our cultural timeline in the church, the NASB in 1977 says Junius outstanding among the apostles. In 1995, it kept Junius outstanding among the apostles. And then in 2020, maybe reflecting the fact that more people in the zeitgeist have been recognizing that it's Junia. Um, They switched it to Junia, but then they also switched it away from their consistent translation of outstanding among the apostles to be outstanding in the view of the apostles, (laughs) (laughs) which obviously removes her apostleship. So that was a, a um, invention of the ESV writers. They were the ones who came up with that idea. Um, You can read online on, in Wikipedia, the reasons that they made that choice. And you can read the criticisms of that choice, which is that they're, they're on extraordinarily shaky ground, um, in terms of being consistent throughout the text and the way that we translate um, that that grammatical phrase. Um, but it fit for them. So we got her femininity restored and her apostleship taken away. Um, so again, you can see this if you type in Romans 16, 7, Bible Hub, you can see 32 different people uh, who, yes, were doing their best. Yes, are also shaped by their era um, and see if your favorite version where, where they're landing on this particular issue. NIV gets it once again, Junia outstanding among the apostles. Right. Boom. Right. Because there's folks who do say Junia. Officially unofficial translation of the Bama podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I was trying to figure out how I wanted to say that. <laughs> Brent nailed it. <laughs> oh, dear. Yeah, because some people took picked up the Junia, but then took the ASV new option that had been given to them and said, okay, she can be feminine, but we're going to change this wording. See, people people ask us about this all the time, like why we like to use NIV. They've read all the Facebook memes, obviously NIV straight from the pit of hell, and why would we use it? And when I say, because I prefer the scholarship and the parameters of the translation, and that's not always true, and I'm sure Elle probably has some bones to pick with the NIV if I were to really press her on it. But uh, like, I think these are good examples of what I mean when I say that. So, Well, even as we were going through the podcast, because you grew up on the NIV 84, uh-huh. and then yep. I would yep. load up my electronic Bible and read the new NIV, and you're like, oh, that ruins my teaching point because they actually got it right now. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's why. If you're looking, all right, back to you, L. Sorry, a, a not no no, we're fine. Um, a non-political, hopefully, if you're annoyed by all of this and you went like, well, what's a more ecumenical people who've come together, right? Because NASB is funded sure. by the SBC, yep. so NRSV uh, was written by the National Council of Churches, which is ecumenical yep. from a whole bunch of mainline and evangelical and even Catholic um, insights. Mm-hmm. It comes from 1908. Um, They have a pretty Mm -hmm. cool history. They were, if you think they're too progressive, do not be afraid. They took money from the CIA to oppose communism at one point. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, they're not. Not the tidbit I thought would show up in the Bay Mob podcast, but I'm here for it. (laughs) Right. (laughs) 
<laughs> What's the CIA up to these days? We'll, we'll see. Um, <laughs> right. So f- most famously, this has happened to Junia, but it's also happened to uh, other characters. Julia, who's also in Roman 16. I was just looking at that one the whole time you guys were chatting. I was like, oh, check this out. Yep. 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 Uh, Syntyche, which, boy... That's yep. that's a guess uh, at how her name is pronounced. But she also got switched to masculine and then back to feminine yep. when people realized what was at work. Um, and usually yep. that happens partially because people are uncomfortable with two women in the missionary pair system that we're used to in the text. Yep. Um, and so that's why Trephenia and Trephosa get downgraded from ministers because you can't have two in a pair. Um, so anyway... Yeah. All yeah. the things. Okay. These are our forgotten yep. women. Maybe they've been deleted entirely. <laughs> Maybe they've just been skimmed over so that we can assign our own assumptions. Um, and maybe they could just use a little bit more time and inspection like Hana. That's what I've got. That's it for I this know. episode? Yeah. What are Man. we running at, Brent? Uh, holy yeah, uh, 50 minutes, maybe. Beautifully succinct. Yeah. Perfect. Wow. Wow. And I was tracking the whole time. I didn't even get lost. Amazing. Sometimes sometimes I will get my brain spinning and I don't even know where I'm at for a while. I black out for a little bit and I come back when she asks me a question. <laughs> Sounds like plausible deniability to me. <laughs> but not on this episode. I was tracking the whole time. No, I think those uh it it is yeah, it's crazy to become aware of some of these things and and see that and be able to look at what's been done right before our eyes on some of these instances. Some of them are a little bit more complex and nuanced. Some of them are just like, they did what? Right. They added an S. They, what? How could they do that? And and there are pretty extensive footnotes on some of these things in the NET, which will kind of give you an idea of some of the, the debate and the different manuscripts at play and the different, you know, how Greek is constructed and whatever. Um, and And it's, you know, you could see how it'd be pretty easy to just... You know, if you're if you're a scribe and you're like, I don't like that. And you just throw a little accent mark on there and all of a sudden it's a totally different thing. And it's then you've got it's like this huge battle. Well, of like uh, yeah. should I just do your own Googling. Not that Googling is always the answer. In fact, it can be a dangerous answer. But sometimes those footnotes, they look like they're doing their jobs because it'll say some manuscripts say X, Y, Z in a footnote. But then when you actually look at it, which takes some work, they're all like post-12th century. Right, it's right. like, well, <laughs> that's not. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah. It's not just how many how many manuscripts. It's what manuscripts we're talking about, what period, what era, what influence, all those kinds of things. Absolutely. Where, like sometimes it's all the Armenian ones. It's like, well, yep. okay. Yeah. Yep. That tells me something about Armenia that is helpful and interesting about the church. Mm-hmm. And yep. and I've seen some footnotes that go into great detail about which manuscripts, but they don't necessarily explain when or where those manuscripts are from. So yeah, there's like it, it's not a there's no simple answer. You gotta you gotta actually do some work um, to nail it down. But I I feel like in cases like this where it's like kind of like this. Uh, I, I I mean I don't I don't know if obscure, but it's not like. People don't quote Romans 16 very often. You know, we're not we're not super familiar with it. We just read it. It's like, oh, it's a bunch of names. And we don't really sit down and consider it in depth. Um, and I, I feel like a, uh, a translation tool where you're looking at a bunch of translations can really dig up. I mean, as we've as we illustrated here, 
uh, a whole bunch of like variations. It's like, wow, how are, how are these all so different? Like, right. Is it, you know, so plenty of things to consider in our survey of the women of the new Testament. It's simple. If the Bible says it, gotta believe it. That's all you need to know. That settles it. Works for me. (laughs) Yep. Oh man. Yeah. I don't know. Well, and I'm encouraged by this conversation for like a few reasons. I mean, some of these things, like we're calling, we're titling some of these conversations of forgotten women. And some of these really truly are like, it's just easy to take hard worker. And because of our own present cultural baggage, we perceive it through a particular lens and they do really get forgotten. And then some of these things, it's like, they weren't forgotten. They were like expunged, like they were scrubbed. Um, And that, and I like also what we've done here because that's a that's a very objective conversation because sometimes we react by saying, oh, now there's conspiracy theories everywhere we look. Nothing's true about the scriptures. And what I like is that – and it's not that this is the only isolated case ever in the Bible of anything being toyed with, but those are very objective conversations. Um, I appreciated when you started earlier. You were like – when you, I think you were talking about Judith and you were talking about – this is not some large conspiracy theory to remove it because of the feminine character, but because of so many other things at play. Those There's objectivity, not open, shut, like no conversation, but there is objectivity to those conversations. Right. How different communities want to wrap in this kind of information with their broader understanding of roles and Pauline instructions is totally up to them and their communities. Right. Yeah. Great point. Great point. 100%. Yeah. Beautiful to know. And just just to consider like Romans 16, like you could you could sit in this chapter for a long time and really, really think about like the breadth of Paul's ministry to Rome, the number of people involved, the the uh, diversity of backgrounds and situations like we have benefactors and then we have, uh, you know, we have people who, uh, whose fidelity to Christ has stood the test. It's like, okay, well that, that guy's probably a girl. I don't know. A a is that a guy or a girl? I don't know. Apollos. Probably Uh, a dude. Oh no, it's not Apollos. It's a A P E L L E S is how they're, uh, transliterating it. Anyway, it doesn't matter. Like you can look into that and just, and figure out if that's a guy or girl, but either way, their fidelity to Christ has stood the test. It's like, well, we don't know what that means exactly, but that person has probably been through some stuff. And the, like just the, the number of people in this in this chapter is really something to like step back and not not just read over, but actually consider like what what their story is and what we can learn about them. So my Reformed Baptist church that I grew up in spent no fewer than fifteen years in the book of Romans. And so <laughs> I <laughs> I feel okay not spending more time. <laughs> <laughs> but how much time did you spend in this chapter? Not as much as the other ones, that's for sure. Maybe maybe a lot, <laughs> maybe too much time explaining away all of the... More than most, but not as much. <laughs> you know, when you're a church who has three services and all of the congregants are commanded to attend all three services, you can spend a lot more time that's right. in certain spots. Oof. So. Let's go back wow. to that model, man. Some potluck, some chaos, kids napping in the back. I mean, I think we could all use a nap. 
That's All true. right. Well, let's uh, let's close this down before <laughs> before we break any records here. Uh, let's see. Hey, man. So that does it for this week. We uh, we have one more week with L um, talking about some more forgotten women. Before I'm set off the gangplank, it sounds a little bit dire. <laughs> That's right. One more, and then we'll see what happens after this anthology. <laughs> Very Princess Bride, most likely kill you in the morning. <laughs> well, we'll see. You know, people are always asking for more uh, Hebrew lessons, so we might have to come back with some more. Don't say that. <laughs> we'll just scrub her name from the Bema record like we did Junia from the Book of Romans. <laughs> oh, wonderful. I'll have good company out there in the hinterlands. <laughs> I don't I don't even mean your like Hebrew classes. I just mean like the learning Hebrew with L episodes where we talk about a series of words. Gotcha, gotcha. Okay, you're finishing the episode, Brent. I believe in you. I don't want to be longest anymore. <laughs> no, this I'm gonna have to cut this whole thing out because this is all like a mess and <laughs> Great. I'm glad to hear it. Uh, okay. Well, you know what? Just go to bamboodeception.com. Uh, definitely check out, I think, yeah, we're, we're still in the middle of Marty's book tour. So like go to the news page and see where Marty's going to be. Make sure you are tracking him down and getting your book signed or whatever you want. Um, and, uh, plenty of things to do there. We've got some things in the show notes. Um, and, uh, yeah, that'll do it for this week. We'll talk to you again soon. Feel free to put a question in my mouth. Uh, Maggie called me three times. And uh, apparently they were all pocket dials. So I've been very distracted for the last 10 minutes trying to figure out what in the world is going on. You know, we are talking. It looks like she's at Walmart. (laughs) How could anything go wrong at Walmart? (laughs) I can think of a few. Uh, I mean, yeah. No, they're, yeah. So anyway, I've basically been tuned out. You know, we are just talking about Apocrypha. You don't need, it's it's not authoritative. (laughs) It's not even scripture, Brent. We're fine. It's not scripture. You're fine. (laughs) It's the NKJV. It's the Apocrypha. <laughs> We're off the We're rails. not even dealing with God's words yet. <laughs> <laughs> Troubling.